There is great variation across the United States for making brain death protocol. How can we address these differences in practice? You are listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan Hill, Professor of Surgery at the Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. David Greer, Assistant Professor of Neurology at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Greer directed a national survey of neurology and neurosurgical programs to analyze policies for making brain death declarations. Welcome, Dr. Greer. Thanks for having me. Today we are discussing the future of brain death protocol. Dr. Greer, when you spoke about the questionnaires that you sent to various hospitals, were all of these hospitals tertiary care centers? The majority of them were, yes. Did you ever think of sending out questionnaires to community hospitals? That has been done in the past. There was a study that came out a few years ago that sent out a survey to somewhere around four or 500 hospitals, and they get a, a fairly poor response rate, probably around 30 or 40 percent, but that included a smattering of different hospitals. We wanted to actually look at the leading hospitals in the country to see what they were doing as an, if you will, best-case scenario. What are the leading hospitals saying are their guidelines for determination of brain death? to see if others were following suit. As you discussed, the results were surprising and somewhat disconcerting. How would you summarize everything? Well, the results showed that there was a lot of variation across the different hospitals in terms of who could perform brain death testing, what were the prerequisites for doing the clinical testing for brain death, what exactly was specified in the clinical exam, what was specified for doing an apnea test, and then what kind of ancillary tests could be performed and what specifics were given about those tests. Across the board of those five categories, we found that there were significant discrepancies between the different hospitals as compared to the American Academy of Neurology guidelines. Did you ask any of these hospitals why they were not consistent with the Academy's recommendations? We were very careful not to do that, and I would give you the caveat that we don't want to accuse any of these hospitals of giving inferior care or substandard care in any way. Again, these were the guidelines that are present at these hospitals. What was actually practiced in these hospitals, we have no idea. It may be far more specific than what's actually in their guidelines. They may be doing things entirely by the book, if you will. So we don't know why there were differences and why some hospitals had much more stringent guidelines than others. But again, this does not draw conclusions about what is actually being practiced in these hospitals. It's only what their policies are. Now, what are your suggestions based on your conclusions? We would like to make the AAN practice parameters much more specific and explicit in terms of what's included. In other words, saying exactly who can determine brain death, what are the prerequisites prior to testing, what aspects of the coma exam should be performed, and how should they be performed, how should the apnea test be performed very carefully, and what kind of ancillary tests should be done, and what are their pitfalls as well. We'd like to make these things very explicit so that people can understand what's behind them and how to do them correctly. There would also potentially be some type of web-based checklist that people could print off and thereby make sure that they're doing things according to national standards. Now, who in each hospital or what group determines the guidelines individually? Well, in our our hospital, it was actually our neurocritical care group that got together and talked about this, and it really takes one person that has a specific interest in it to draw it up. 
That's how it happened in our hospital, that every few years you look at the guidelines and say, well, that's pretty good, or say, whoa, that needs a little bit of changing. And that's that's what we did. So we started looking at our guidelines a few years ago, and I started revamping it. And then you bring it to the group, and then the group brings it to the hospital uh, policy committee for its approval. And what do you think would happen if you went to various community hospitals, the smaller community hospitals in the rural areas, and ask them for their guidelines. Would they have any at all? I can't know the answer to that question, but I think that many community hospitals would have guidelines. I just can't tell you how many or what exactly would be in them. Do all neurologists agree with the guidelines set up by the academy? I don't think that there's very much, uh, if any, disagreement out there in terms of neurologists uh, and their feelings about the, the guidelines that are present in the American Academy of Neurology. I think the only fault that people see with them is that they're old. They're now 13 years old. It came out in 1995, and it's time that they be revamped. And I and my co-authors have approached the Quality Standards Subcommittee of the AAN to offer them the potential for submitting a new, more stringent practice parameter. If you have just joined us, you are listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157. I am your host, Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, professor of surgery at Chicago Medical School, and with me today is Dr. David Greer, assistant professor of neurology at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. We are discussing the future of brain death protocol. Dr. Greer, why are the specific brain death protocol allowed to be so variable from hospital to hospital and isn't mandated by the federal government? Well, that's a great question. I don't really know why it wasn't mandated that it be done the same way everywhere. I think that you could make a case that if it's a legal definition of death, that it it should be actually a, a nationally approved guideline or beyond that protocol because the guidelines suggest that they're can be some deviation. This should be actually very formalized if it were a formal definition of brain death, in my opinion, but it's not. And I'm not sure exactly why this kind of leeway has been given to make it the practice at each individual hospital. So I'm not sure. Well, Dr. Greer, be the devil's advocate. If you were at one of the hospitals where, let's say, they did not use the apnea test properly or they were having other inconsistencies, and you were standing in their shoes, what would they say perhaps to you in defense of the way they determine brain death? I don't know what they would say to me, to be honest with you. I think that I would I would approach them in a, in a cautious way in my shoes and ask them what their feeling is in comparison to the AAN guidelines, but I think that's a tricky situation. You don't want to come off in an aggressive or offensive way to people when you when you see things differently. So, for example, when I found the discrepancy between the Mass General's guidelines and the Brigham and Women's Hospital's guidelines. I spoke to Marty Samuels, who's a friend of mine. He's the chairman of neurology at the Brigham, and and told him of my concerns. And and I thought that there was the potential for misdiagnosis, and I asked him to take a look at it. And he's, you know, very gracious, and he agreed. And they've gone through the steps to make their guidelines much more similar to ours. Now, you know, I have a good relationship with Marty Samuels, So this was easy for me to do. If I were at a community hospital where I didn't know people very well and I noted that they were doing the apnea test in a way that may or may not give the correct answer, it might be difficult for me to approach that situation and not step on some toes. So that that takes a little bit of doing. Have there been any medical legal precedents set because of these inconsistencies? Not that I know of, but I think that it's just a matter of time before malpractice lawyers get a hold of my article and start questioning different hospitals in terms of their practice. 
But again, the practice at a certain hospital is not necessarily what is seen in their guidelines. In other words, people may be much more specific about what's being done on a day-to-day basis or a patient-to-patient basis compared to what's written in their, in their formal guidelines. So I can't say anything based on our study about what's actually being practiced at these individual hospitals. Now, I would never want to say anything good that uh, more legal involvement in our profession would be beneficial, but do you think that that might be beneficial in getting everyone to make sure that they followed the guidelines? No, I don't think so. I would hate to see it come to something like that. I think that it's important uh, to do a study like we did to show that there is a difference and that there's the potential for misdiagnosis and that hopefully the good thing that will come from this will be much more stringent guidelines that come out from the AAN. I think that would be the way to address this. I would hate for it to turn into a number of medical legal cases that would be the impetus for change. I think that would definitely be a very wrong way to go about it in a very unfortunate way. In updating these guidelines, as you mentioned that you were doing, does it ever get to the point where instead of doing the clinical examination, that you decide completely on technological advances to make this decision? Absolutely. There are certain times when you can't trust the clinical exam, say a case in which there is drug intoxication or a case in which there's severe facial trauma and you can't actually examine the cranial nerves. In a situation, any situation in which you can't trust the clinical exam or perform certain key aspects of it, then you need to forego the rest of the testing including the apnea test, and go straight to an ancillary test. There's no point, if you consider that the patient is brain dead, but you can't test it, that there's no point in doing a partial examination and feeling that you're done. In that case, or if you're putting the patient potentially at harm, uh, if they're too unstable to be tested, then you go right to an ancillary test. Is the electroencephalogram the gold standard for the ancillary test? No, the gold standard would probably still be a cerebral angiogram, although that's not widely available and it's very difficult sometimes to get people to come in and do it in the middle of the night. I think the test that's probably supplanted that more recently has been the radionuclide technesium study showing no uptake of tracer in the brain. That's a very helpful test to be able to do. In terms of bedside tests, Things like the EEG have been used, but the problem is in the intensive care unit, there can be a lot of artifact created that can confuse the picture by showing what appears to be electrical activity that's actually just throwing off artifact from the instruments. Other things have been looked at, such as transcranial Doppler, but they have potential difficulties with their testing, and we don't routinely recommend their use in our hospital. Now, do you do multiple ancillary tests, or are these each 100% into themselves? Well, no, if it's done correctly, then you trust the results uh, of what's seen. If it's an inconclusive test, then you potentially could do a different one. But, for example, if you got a radionuclide study that showed that there was no uptake of tracer, then you'd be done. The patient is brain dead. If it showed some uptake of tracer, well, then you're, you're done then also. The patient does, is, does not fulfill the criteria for brain death that there is some uptake of tracer. If you have an EEG that shows there's potentially some artifact, but otherwise it's a flat background, I'd say that's an inconclusive test. And that's when you go on and do a different ancillary test. If you fulfill the clinical criteria for brain death, are there ever situations where you decide, I want to do some ancillary tests? Nope. The diagnosis is a clinical one. And if you've done the clinical examination correctly, then you're done. There's no need to go on and get an ancillary test. It's also along the same vein of why would you need to do two separate full clinical examinations. That's assuming if you do that, that there may be something reversible. 
And if there's something reversible, you shouldn't be doing the testing in the first place. So the best example of this I would give you would be somebody who's had a cardiac arrest who may very early on have very little brain function, but then may regain some. So doing a brain death test early on in a patient who's just had a cardiac arrest may be misleading. That's a potentially reversible situation that they may have some recovery from. So you have to wait at least six hours in our hospital before doing that type of testing. I want to thank our guest, Dr. David Greer. We have been discussing the future of brain death protocol. I'm Dr. Mark Nolan-Hill, and you have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Be sure to visit our website, www.reachmd.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts of our entire library. For comments and questions, please send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.